0: When we look at a forest, at the moment, most of us have this fabrication. We have an an idea of the forest. We have objectified the forest so that there are trees, yes, but they're not real, real beings having their own story to tell. Otherwise, we would be interested in listening.
1: when we talk about animals, a Yale University podcast about the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris.
2: And I'm Jennifer Skeen.
1: Are plants intelligent? Can they think and feel? Can they communicate, learn, and solve problems? Throughout history, most Western philosophers and scientists answered these questions with a resounding no. Plants, despite having evolved so successfully that they account for about 80% of the world's biomass, Have long been treated as inanimate, silent, and unaware, and may seem to have little place on a podcast about animals. In ancient Greece, Aristotle situated them below animals and just above minerals on his hierarchy of the perfection of living things. In this primitive yet still dominant view, plants are considered to be passive objects that form the backdrop to our active lives, rather than highly sensitive, intelligent organisms with agency of their own.
2: But on the cutting edge of
1: modern science, This orthodoxy is being
2: questioned by scientists, including our guest today, who think that plants are radically more sophisticated and sensitive than we've been giving them credit for. These plant researchers are willing to imagine the possibility that plants have senses like ours, the ability to hear, smell, see, taste, and feel, capabilities like learning, memory, and social networks, as well as entirely distinct ways of interacting with the world, such as detecting and responding to vibrations, electromagnetic fields, and chemical signals. Thanks to this growing body of work, we now know, for example, that some plants can hear the sounds of animal pollinators and react by sweetening their nectar, that plants can send airborne chemical messages to warn each other of dangerous pests, and that plants can exchange carbon and signals through the fungal wood wide web connecting their roots. This new understanding of plants as active information processing organisms with complex communication strategies has led to the exciting and controversial field of plant cognition.
1: Our guest, Dr. Monica Gagliano, is an evolutionary ecologist whose daring and imaginative research has expanded our perception of plants and animals. Persevering against the scientific establishment, she pioneered the field of plant bioacoustics, the study of sounds produced by and affecting plants. The results of her groundbreaking studies suggest that plants may possess intelligence, memory, and learning via mechanisms that differ from our own. Gagliano is a research associate professor at the University of Western Australia and is the author of the book, Thus Spoke the Plant, and many articles on plant behavior. Her work has been featured in popular media by Michael Pollan in The New Yorker and on the Radiolab episode, Smarty Plants, among many other places. She's currently based at the University of Sydney. Monica Gagliano, welcome to When We Talk About Animals.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, I'm excited to to be here and delve into the conversation.
2: <laughs> Monica, you, you started off your career actually as a marine biologist in Australia. Back in 2008, you were diving on Australia's Great Barrier Reef and carrying out experiments on reef fish. And you say that you were plant blind back then. And then, of course, in the, in the years since, you've come to focus your research primarily on, on plant behavior in, in very creative, and impactful ways. What led you to this transition from focusing on on animal ecology to a career focused on plant behavior?
0: (laughs) I know that it sounds like, how did you get from one thing to the other? And um, I think actually it's more common than we believe to be uh, in Mm -hmm. science for people to change what we perceive as radically different fields, but actually once the research unfolds, you realize that actually that, that was not that different. And uh, for me, <clears throat> when I was working with my coral reef fishes on the Great Barrier Reef, the major question that I was interested in uh, were our organisms, in this case, my fish, were able to do the best that they could in the environment uh, that they had to live in. and uh, And of course, in relation to changing environment, rapidly changing environment, especially now, uh, it was interesting for me to see, for example, the relationship between different generations and how moms will be able to kind of um, forecast in a way what would be the potentially likely environment that their babies will encounter. And so prepare their babies for that and hope for the best as well. So, as you can see, the questions are very much about behavior of uh, mums and and also yeah intelligent uh, decision making that is uh, both the foundation of biological uh, behavior but also I think is intrinsic in the in the complexity of the web of life and for intelligence, I don't mean like, oh they have a high i q or they can resolve puzzles that we human might might resolve or intelligence in the very sense of the the meaning of the word the word that is basically the ability to choose between so to discriminate to be able to sense perceive your environment sense uh, differences and then take the best path that might ensure your your survival at the least but actually most species i think they're choosing what makes them thrive so from that perspective the switch to plants later became very clear to me. It's I like, actually, I'm asking still the same questions, uh, but uh, just a different system. And, uh, and it was, uh, for me, it was a personal experience with my own, you know, my own work with the fish uh, that uh, kind of, uh, I feel like forced me to move on because uh, I was doing these experiments in the field and, and I really loved it. And I still, you know, there is a part of me that is still grieving that. Uh, but I'm discovering as well that that field component of my research is about to return and I'm very excited. But um, basically, uh, to just uh, make the story very brief, is I, I was running this experiment and I had an experience in the field, which I actually described in the, in the, at the beginning of the book. And, uh, and the fish themselves, in relating with them, uh, allowed me to um, enter in a state of crisis, but in a, in a good way. So entering in a state of uh, having forced me to question what I was doing instead of just doing it because that's how we do things, that's how science is, or that's what is expected of me for my research or any of those. It was like, what are you actually doing? What are you actually doing with us? And, of course, in that moment, uh, which was very, in a way, very personal some people might define it as very mystical because we're not used to incorporate these kind of experiences as this is just a normal part of life. <laughs> but I, I had this experience where everything changed. I just realized in literally in a little moment of crisis that what I was doing actually didn't have an answer. The question of like, why are you doing this? Didn't really have an answer that could satisfy. And so The main crisis for me arise because uh, there was a demand of my research to kill the the very animals that I was working with. And this is quite common in a lot of research science uh, in animals. And in that moment of uh, relating in the field, so in the fish environment, it was very clear to me that I couldn't do that anymore. And that was a crisis moment because I was so used to think of my science according to those rules that... And never really, really questioned it. You know I, I applied for ethics approval, and um, I got my approval, so it must be all right. <laughs> I don't need to worry about it because it's not my concern. Someone else already approved that this is OK. In that moment, of course, I had to take responsibility for my own <laughs> ethics and realize, actually, there is no approval. The only approval that could have come for this was from the fish themselves, and they clearly showed me that they didn't approve. <laughs> they didn't want to be killed. That forced me to uh, rethink how I was doing my science. And I tried at the beginning to continue working with the fish without killing anything. And it became very clear as well that uh, the way in which science works right now, the sacrifice is kind of part of the demand of the research. And, And it becomes, it's possible to do it without killing, but it becomes very difficult and you run out, pretty quickly you run out of space to address questions. So I realized that maybe I was done as a scientist and uh, that I needed to think myself completely anew with something totally different. I loved science and I didn't really know what else to think of. And while I was uh, gardening in this new place where we moved uh, at the time, I, um, yeah, I started connecting with the plants that we were planting. And. And the plants themselves, it really feels to me, I said it many times, it feels to me like the plants rescued the scientist in me because I was prepared to like, okay, we need to do something else. And the plants were like, ah, not so fast. <laughs> you know, we got some work for you and, uh, and you can take a leaf, you can take a sample, you know, you can take a leaf or whatever you need and that doesn't kill us. So why don't you work with us? And as I said many times, I'm not a plant biologist. I don't really know anything about plants as a plant biologist would. I don't know uh, how the physiology really works. And this has been an interesting experiment for myself as well, because of course I can learn, but there's been a very clear directive inside me. They say like, don't, don't fill up your head with all of these already known material and allow the Mm -hmm. space to be open so that, Uh, maybe something new can arise that is not what you already know or you can learn from what we already know as a as a community but it's more like how about if you don't know how about leaving this not knowing space open so that whatever needs to be known can arise of itself and its own volition in a way and so this is how i've been working with the plants basically for for the research that is you know been developed in the last 10 years
1: So you decide that you want to turn these animal behavior methods onto onto plants and to better understand, you know, how they're sensing and interacting with the worlds around them. How do you go about doing that? What are some of the first experiments that you embarked upon and what were some of the findings that ignited your excitement and work in this field?
0: Yeah, well... um... And this has been uh, criticized as well. but many things have been criticized, so I don't know anymore. But definitely the idea that I've been applying any more protocols, basically, to plants. Why not? (laughs) I mean, the animal research, especially in behavior, is being developed over decades and it's got such a long history and a deep understanding of the pitfall and the things that like, oh, you know, we used to do this, but really this is not quite right. And so why trying to reinvent a method when the method is actually already there? And not only that, but by applying the same methodology, uh, of course, relevant to the plant, we can maybe even start uh, opening a comparative space. And, uh, and when I talk about comparative, I'm not trying to make the plants uh, become an animal. Uh, the same way as uh, when you work with Drosophila, so the fruit fly, uh, you're not trying to uh, say that then a fish is the same as a fruit fly. You might ask exactly the same question and you might use exactly the same protocols, but they are two different organisms. So you acknowledge that. So for me, it's like, well, so working on a drosophila, on a fish, or on a plant, and applying the protocol to all of them, like relative to what they can do, but all of them kind of the same, uh, would open up a space of comparison. And it's not to, again, I should qualify this, it's not, the comparison is not about, oh, fish are better than such and such. So, plants are uh, worse than or better than. No, it's just like a comparison to see, like isn't it amazing the diversity of expression uh, that we can see across different systems who have very different structures? Of course, plants don't have brains, for example, while fish do, and Drosophila have a couple of little neurons here and there. <laughs> so, but, you know, different structure, different forms be able to express ultimately. The same kind of behaviors in their own very specific way. And I think that is what is exciting. So the first experiments that I started with were very simple in terms of conceptually, very complicated. They they turned out to be very complicated experimentally, (laughs) but that was part of the fun. Because of course, again, coming from the animal background, uh, looking at communication, and I was already looking at that with my fish, One of the things that is very obvious when you look at the literature in animals is like, well, a lot of the communication actually does occur uh, through sound. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. um, so there, you know, there are visual displays and olfactory stuff, but really sound is the most obvious. And, you know, you think of a bird, you think of a bird singing and you think of whales and you think, you know, there are so many examples in the animal kingdom where the obvious communication comes through sound. So it was interesting to find. I was just curious. Like, oh, I wonder what we know about plants. And so, as I started digging around, and of course, I dug around the literature in science and found very little. And then I expanded a little bit more into, you know, looking into anthropological records and and started to come across things like, uh, especially from the anthropology ethnography literature, where humans, like, so our humanity has already uh, interacted and spoken of sound and plants. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And it's interesting that science hasn't really explored this. Why not? And so the first experiment I actually did was to test whether if you have the known signals, and at the time was like light and chemistry basically, both underground and above ground. But if you cut those off, would actually be anything left for them to communicate? Because if there is something else left, maybe sound could be one of those. Uh, a potential candidate to explore, but the very first experiment was just about yeah okay. So what happens if I cut off all the signals that we know they use? Uh, Would they still be able to know who is growing next to them, for example? And in this case, I was using very simple or easy plants for me to work with because they were in my garden. And so the first <laughs> experiments were with the chilies and basils and fennel plants, and and from again from the from the companion planting. Uh, of perspective so for many gardeners this is a very common thing to do you know you would put certain plants close to each other because we kind of know that they like each other they want to grow with each other and similarly we also know that some plants really do not work very well with next to each other and fennel is one of those that nobody really likes it much so um usually uh, plants don't do very well when they're planted next to the fennel because it can be quite uh, chemically aggressive So in the experiment, I tried to see what chili plants, baby chili plants or seedlings would do uh, in the presence of a fennel when the presence of the fennel was uh, not available in terms of light or chemistry. So the fennel was locked up in this box and then the chili were all around and locked up in the wrong box. And this was like, a, <laughs> and so experimentally was a, was a bit of a nightmare because I had to build this Matrioska set of boxes <laughs> and they all had to be sealed so that there would be no leakage from one to the next to the next. Eventually we got it. And, um, and what we found is actually when I was cutting off, for example, both light and chemical potential communication, the chili will still know this, there is a phenol in there and we are not happy about this. And that would affect growth and germination rates and all of that kind of stuff. So, And then I did the same experiment with the basil, which, of course, is a good companion. And the chilies are very happy that it's there. And that's exactly what we found as well. That Even if they couldn't smell it or see it, there was something that they were able to use in terms of communication channel that would allow them to tell to say, yeah, that is a puzzle. We are happy with this and we are going to grow exactly to reflect that. And, um, which of course for me, and just opened the question, okay, there is more, there is more of what we know. There is more of what we think we know and what that is. I don't know. And really much of my, my science with plants has been very much like uh, more of, I don't know than anything else, but I guess uh, I'm getting used to that. And I think, it has been shaping my, my way of thinking now to the point that I very recently I, I uh, prepared this paper with an ethnographer, actually. And we have been literally dismantling an experiment that I've been trying to do over the last year uh, where the I don't know becomes actually a fundamental part of the experiment. And without taking that into account, the experiment actually doesn't work.
1: <laughs> what is the experiment?
0: Well, the experiment is very simple. Again, it's, uh, it's following up uh, on experiments that I've done before with the mazes. And it's interesting because uh, in this case, the maze that I built is a little bit more complex. So instead of having just uh, either left or right, you, the, the plant, in this case is a pea, has potential to choose out of four. And then, of course, in one of the four arms, I put something, in this case is the sand or water, which I know the peas will go to from my previous work. And what happened was that no matter where I put the sound of water, uh, these piece would always go to the one direction that they decided, but that direction was consistently the same always. And I couldn't work out what it was because there was nothing in the room that was giving away that was like, oh, they're going in that direction always because there is this thing. And so this became like the unknown factor that was like, okay, they're obviously, first step was like, oh no, the experiment is failing. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. And then the next phase was like, uh, well, actually the plants are very clear in what they're saying. They're just saying that they're interested in something. And the fact that I don't know what that something is, it doesn't change the, the fact that they are interested in something and they're making their choice very clear. And uh, so again, it was like, the fact that you don't know what they're choosing, it's your problem. <laughs> uh, we're choosing. And I was like, okay. And so suddenly... I tried to work it out and felt great despair because it was like uh, trying to pluck something out of thin hair and trying to guess, basically, and still not able to get anywhere. And then I realized, well, maybe I need to just, uh, you know, this experiment is not working. And in that moment, again, those little epiphanies of like, maybe I'm just uh, need to um, remember that this experiment has many actors. Uh, there is me doing, you know, the experimenter and the scientist and then there are the plants who are clearly involved in this because they're telling me like uh, we are interested in this, even if you don't know what it is. And then the fact that they're interested in this, the unknown thing, um, means that the space itself is also an actor. So the room, the experimental space, is in itself part of the experiment. Yeah, it's, it's acting. It's not a passive space where the plants are put inside and me are, is moving inside, but it's actually the space itself is an actor in the in the experimentation. So suddenly you have at least three actors, me, the plants, in the space where everything is apparently contained. And I thought, okay, so maybe it's a matter of changing one of the actors. And so I moved the entire experiment and myself outside in a greenhouse instead of a controlled room, which, of course, that's the irony. was supposed to be a controlled room, and yet I couldn't control the very thing that the plants were interested in. And as soon as I moved them outside and I moved both uh, uh, me and the plants outside, they started to perform according to what was, uh, you know, the expectation, I guess. So, um, in, a, in a normal context, this would be like, oh, you simply just failed the experiment and the experiment simply didn't work and you should have moved on and just. But I think for me, and now that the experiment is in progress and I don't know the the outcomes yet, but. The most important part for me, which is what we have tried to outline and write about is the very process of getting there. The very process of getting out into that greenhouse eventually where the plants are making yet a different type of choice, a different set of choices. And where I feel like uh, we are in our relating, we are more in sync. Before I was out of sync with my plants and, uh, and that's why the experiment is not working. And of course, the other interesting thing has been that we have submitted this paper to one journal and it was interesting to see the response that we received from the reviewers. And one, I think, was uh, maybe an anthropologist or someone that works in this kind of area and, uh, and they thought it was uh, amazing. It was like, oh, this is, this is awesome, you know, because we described the kind of materials that we were using and how the materials had to change because what you can have in a controlled environment might not be appropriate outside. So everything needed to be adjusted to meet the plans proper. So the ethnographer, anthropologist, uh, I think they, they understood what we were trying to do and what we were trying to explore. Uh, On the other side, we had another reviewer, which I suspect from the kind of comments, it was maybe a neuroscientist of some kind. or And this person just did not get it. It was like, well, but where is the data? If you don't have any data, then there is no experiment. And so what are you writing this about? Which I think is the interesting part for me because uh, it's exactly the crux of the problem. You have these two systems. One that is focused on like, there is a way to get this uh, information. We, as the scientists, are producing the knowledge and we have we have certain methods to produce it. And if we fail, that's simply like, uh, we did something wrong. And it's all about everything. The control of the entire thing is about us. While in the other perspective is a rela- relational space. And so in a way, it's a relational science making where the space and all of the actors are involved in creating uh, knowing rather than knowledge or experiences rather than facts and uh, yeah so i'm still dwelling into that
2: <laughs> you mentioned uh, as you were describing this experiment the need to get in sync with your plants and robin kimmerer has described plants as teachers which is a description that you have also used and in your book you describe how you learned about plants by by speaking with them and uh with plants like Socoba by by physically ingesting them um and the way that you describe p- plants is is something that you can actually get in sync with which is not the way that most people think about them and and in fact you make an interesting argument in your book that it was evolutionarily advantageous for humans to be able to learn from and listen to plants and that there's a coevolution happening Can you describe the relationship between people and and plants and and what you mean by when you say that, you know, you can be in sync with plants and that plants can be teachers?
0: Well, um, as you can imagine, and probably as, um, you know, anybody that has read the book already would have guessed, is like it didn't take very long for me to realize that science, the scientific literature was limited. And there were uh, other information and other perspectives that I could explore in terms of learning how to do my science. And this perspective, of course, are from the academia itself. So like anthropology and philosophy and all of those other areas, including as well as literature, because many things have been written about plants in fiction. And yet... Uh, fiction might not be so fictional (laughs) at the end. So, Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of the work that I uh, explored within the academic uh, uh, container basically was reaching out to uh, things and practices that are actually, they've been in place for millennia and they're still occurring. Of course, you know, like uh, I'm referring to the indigenous approach to to science really indigenous science culture from that perspective and so i was really interested in understanding how these other perspectives would arrive to a conclusion how do they learn about things in that sense i ended up like you know traveling to south america north america and also here in australia and asia and yeah and just opening myself to the possibility of learning in a different way and of course as you do that you're bound to find something that will meet you. And uh, and what I was met by was the plants themselves. And with all of the people I've worked with over the years and still, you know, continue working with, at the end, the, I think the bottom line is always like, there is no um, need for a human intermediary. You know, like uh, we have this idea, it's a romantic idea, I think, of the shaman or the, you know, the, the healer, or as I actually, in the end, the real shamans or the real healers are those that allow you, they, they just encourage you to open so that you can have a direct connection with this other. And the other in this case is often the plants themselves, the plants themselves are, are the teacher. And, um, and there are practices that have been well tested over time which regularly allow you to get in touch and, and converse richly with these others. And of course, many people think, especially for the South American tradition where, you know, many of the plants used are hallucinogenic. And there is a, a strong taboo around this. But actually, if you look through our history as humanity, we have been using hallucinogenic plants in all sorts of ways. And not only just to, the typical, like, oh, get off your face, because that's not what they really do. But actually to, uh, you know, for example, childbirth and those very important moments in our lives where we need support to go through. And uh, I mean, just think about uh, the hallucinogenic property of coffee It's like it gives you a high and you take it. Most of us take it every morning. So, but that's been normalized. So we don't see coffee as a problem or as a, you know, a drug. We just see like, well, coffee is nice and it's good and I I, I need it, you know, in the morning. And so it's just another bias that we have. But um, when certain plants, and I would say pretty much all plants, are engaged in a a ceremonial contest where um, there is a particular attitude, there is a particular quality of the meeting, when you are going into a ceremony uh, of any kind, uh, that can be very simple or very like ritualized, uh, the fee is the feeling of how you approach that really matters, at least in my experience, that's what I, I took home. And, and so there is a sense of reverence that you are about to have a really important meeting. And, uh, and if you take it like that, in my experience, what you experience uh, in that interaction can be absolutely life changing, so profound that it does change you completely, and uh, and it opens up well, your eyes really, and you can see things, uh, you can appreciate things that in um, in the previous version of you uh, were absolutely not even conceivable. I don't think this is madness, you know, because a lot of people think that oh, but that's like you're just you know you're just losing it, <laughs> and it's like well. Actually, for myself, and I can only speak for myself uh since I started working with plants, I feel most grounded, and I think I have produced the best science that I could have produced so um, in the end, it's like well, the data <laughs> so the the actual results are showing that there is something into this that is actually really beneficial uh for how we learn and understand and interact and be responsible for the entanglement of our lives with the rest of life. And so from that perspective, I would encourage anybody to go on, engage, engage with life, engage with your plants in your garden. You don't need to do anything strange or weird or whatever, just engage. And the the experience that I've had from people sending me emails and and basically, the, you know, various, there are many variations of the, the email, but the, so the, the, the kind of subject is always the same. And he's like, oh, thank you so much. Now, you know, I, I knew this, I knew this, and now I have like almost permission to engage. So we need to give ourselves permission to engage. And for some reason, I think we have created a system so controlled and so, like Western science is such a good example of that, so controlled, that uh, it kind of loses its own essence. It's not that having control in a scientific experiment is not good, actually, it's part of the method, but to be over-controlling becomes uh, useless. And I think in that sense, then going back to your, your question, actually, I think that evolutionary speaking, yeah, it would have been, why not ask a plant what it's for and wait and listen quietly and deeply for the answer, which is going come, and it comes every time, uh, instead of uh, wasting years and years of experimentation, which already is losing the answer in the very process because it's dismantling things instead of looking at the entanglement of things. And it's funny that, um, again, as scientists, we would uh, not you know, consider the fact that, especially for modern science, especially for evolutionary uh, biology, you know, Charles Darwin on, in his big book on the origin of the species, he finishes up a big book and he finishes up in his last paragraph talking and maybe I would say even marveling at the complexity of the web and how everything is so, so tangled up. And so uh, I think it it goes, uh, it finishes something like on, you know, these uh, incredible endless numbers of of forms um, that are so beautiful and so wonderful and, you know, so simple and and yet so complex. I I think it's just so overwhelmed by uh, seeing, you know, the grandeur of of life as really it is, this complex and beautifully entangled web. And why do you forget that?
2: <laughs> I, I love the way you describe the relationship between plants and humans. You said, quote, we breathe each other in and out of existence, one made by the exhalation of the other.
1: Monica, you mentioned that while there hasn't prior to, to your work and some of your colleagues, there had been um, not much scientific literature on, on how plants are Receiving and and emitting sound, there has been in in fiction, and I'm curious: Are you familiar with the Royal Doll story, the Sound Machine? Yeah. <laughs> well, this is a fascinating. Someone shared this story with me um, last year. It's fascinating 1949 story for anyone um, who's not familiar with it, which is about a scientist and inventor named Klausner who's obsessed with sounds and creates this machine that will let him listen beyond the frequency range that humans can typically hear. And he listens to this machine and hears a neighbor. chop a tulip or a rose and the tulip is effectively, it's obviously it's fictionalized screaming and he's horrified by what he realizes we've been doing to plants. But I'm curious is a version of that happening now? And do you worry about through all that you've learned about plants as, as sensitive organisms, and as organisms, they're interacting with and and feeling the world in all of these different ways. Do you worry about what we're doing to them through not necessarily through chopping a tulip, but through clear cutting or through the other massive impacts we're having on forests and plants and other ecosystems?
0: Well, of course. I mean, um, <clears throat> our impact on the environment is devastating, and we should be concerned about. But I think it won't stop unless we uh, literally refine our attention. And understand our purpose, our role in the system in this entangled web, which I don't think we have understood. Because if we did, then we would know that. What basically, the when we look at a forest at the moment, most of us have this fabrication. We have an, an idea of the forest. We have objectified the forest so that there are trees, yes, but they're not real. Real beings having their own story to tell. Otherwise, we would be interested in listening. So there is no story, there is no narrative. They, you know, they're not included in a world of relationship, feelings, consciousness, or even pain in relation to the story. Roda. Well, that is a uh, is the dominant paradigm that has created this uh, literally fabrication is uh, is not real, and but it keeps us separate from the rest of life. And of course, that, that doesn't actually describe the world that we live in. And as I have recently written this about um, fish pain, and it's exactly the same issue. It's like, uh, you know, we live in a world of subjectivities. It's not an I world, but it's a we world. And until we appreciate that, uh, we are not going to be able to feel that the, the, the cutting of the forest is like cutting your own arm. The cutting of the killing of a fish is the the killing of a part of you. There there are no objects; there are only beings, and we are all one being. Uh, again, going back to the famous entangled bank that Charles Darwin wrote, wrote about, is like that's I think what he's talking about is the interconnectedness of these life forms. So that when you cut down a tree, uh, you are actually cutting down a part of you, the memory of you. And I had a beautiful experience recently. Uh, as you know, I, I was in the field and, and I was um, walking on this track out in the middle of Australia. Uh, I passed this beautiful big tree and, uh, and I heard in my head, uh, why don't you sit with me? And being human, very human, and you know, I was part of a group and the rest of the group was kind of like a bit ahead of me, uh, I felt like, well, no, I don't have time right now. And uh, next to me, there were another three people. And I just kind of verbalized them. So like, oh, the tree just said, you know, that he wanted to, wanted me to sit there. But I said that we don't have time. And uh, and one of the people uh, that was in this smaller group left behind, said, so like, well, why don't we? So we actually turned around and sat back under the tree. And it was beautiful because I often, and again, this is a very human thing. I often go to the plants and say, okay, so what have you got for me? What can I take? And often they are very generous and they just continue giving me information and learning and whatever it is. But this time was different. And when I said, like, I saw so what have you got for me? Uh, the big tree was like, uh, oh, no, what have you got for me? <laughs> and I was like, uh, okay, what is it that you, you need? And it's like, I just need you to sit with me. And then mm-hmm. he said, you know, it's been a long time. Your people, you humans, used to come and sit under my shade for a very long time, and then you didn't. And I'm so happy that you're back now. Now, this time gap that the tree is talking about is 20,000 years because that is a site where the last time there were people living there, humans, uh, it's 20,000 years. I mean, our mind cannot even comprehend what that means. And yet a tree not only remembers us, but also like, oh yeah, well, 20,000 years is not a big deal. I've been waiting and I'm so glad that now you're back. So Hmm. to have these experiences and and not only I would like to uh, clarify that the four of us sitting under that tree, we all had the same experience. So it's not just, uh, maybe you can call me mad, but otherwise, like we are the four of us, we're all mad in the same way. There is a subjectivity there. There is a continuity in time. And we have a very different perspective of time. And plants are very good. They could be a very good teacher to help us to get out of our idea of controlled time and entering a space where time actually doesn't matter. Because when the tree said to me like, oh, it's been a long time, but you know, I'm really glad you're here. It just felt like uh, I actually connected to, I felt like that he was talking about me being there last time. Although I know like 20,000 years ago, I wasn't there. Other, other humans were there, but that's again, the connection, the interconnectedness of life forms that it doesn't matter how long ago it was, it's still here. And it doesn't matter what form it is because it's just all the same. And so, as you can see, then going back to how I do my science, I approach in a very different way. And I'm using science because it's a very good method and I like it and I enjoy it. And it suits my personality as well because uh, I'm curious and I think science is a very good way to explore questions like this. But the undercurrent of my approach is uh, very different. And I think that really fundamentally, this is probably what is really annoying my colleagues, because I think that it's somehow, somewhere they can feel that there is something different going on. And it's not about the data, because often I don't get, uh, you know, the discussion and the attacks even are not about the data, are often about uh, the concept and But the concept we can discuss uh, as long as we like is like when you bring your subjectivity and your experiences, I suddenly like, well, this is what happened and this is what I did with this. So then the action that follows from those interactions is what mattered to me. And if that brings new understanding, that is what mattered to me. And this is the same kind of approach and understanding that our indigenous people, so our indigenous humanity have done for millennia. And then we decided that it was not valuable anymore. But actually, it's probably the only thing that is going to get us out of this mess. So uh, I don't know. If evolutionary speaking, I think that we have a, a really good, important card to play. And the quicker we get there, the better.
2: Well, on on that re- rejection and and skepticism that you faced from from some of your colleagues, which you've alluded to here and, and described in in your writings, uh, you know about how you were ignored by colleagues in the hallways, as if sort of the way you you viewed plants as subjects was contagious and and could rub off on them if they interacted with you for too long. Have you seen that changing at all? Um, you know, while while the idea of plant intelligence still seems to remain on the fringes of, of science, we've seen at least it seems like, a growth in popular understanding that there might be more to plants than meets the eye or, or the ear, as it may be. I'm, I'm thinking of books like The Hidden Life of Trees and, and even Richard Powers' Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Overstory, which describes how uh, nothing is less isolated and more social than a tree. How have you seen perceptions of your work change over the last few years? And, and how have public perceptions of your work versus sciences compared?
0: Yeah, as always, we know science takes its time, and it's fair enough. It should, <laughs> you know, it should. It changes slowly, and he wants to make sure that if he's gonna take on the change, you know, it's the right direction. And that's, I think, it's fair enough. It's part of the method, and it's part of the approach. Even said that, I actually uh, see uh, slowly trickling in a lot of work, especially on the plant bioacoustics that were. There are now a few groups that I know are working on this, and there are. Uh, I know there are other people who are working on the sort of cognitive aspect of the plants, so the learning, the memory, the uh, the behavioral aspects of plants. And so, I think again, it will take a while for these experiments. I know that my experiments take years to to come to once they get published. So uh, it will take a while. There is a lag in time, but I know that it's happening. And I know that it will just unfold as always it does in science. And you know we have passed. Uh, was it Schopenhauer that was like we have passed the first three stages of you know the total rejection and and I think we are close to the final stage where they are just gonna say that we always knew this. <laughs> so it's okay with me. I don't need to be annoyed. <laughs> I just want the I want us to move on and uh, and I think we are moving on so in a way I've already succeeded that's it <laughs> uh, from the perspective of the um, more general audience of course as I mentioned as well before I think many humans know this there is actually nothing new and so it's almost like um, we have been asking permission and this kind of work simply is allowing for that permission to be granted not that they needed it but It feels like okay now you got it off you go, (laughs) and um, and so I I feel like that um, uh, you know a lot of people now are happy to explore you know more shamanic approaches to plants and the more indigenous perspectives of uh, connecting with plants, understanding plants, and not just plants but life in general. And I think that can only be good. And whether science is gonna catch up with that or not in a way it's kind of irrelevant right now because uh, we are at a place where we need a drastic change of mind and if science is going to be too slow to support that well we need it anyway so hopefully it will come from the collective and maybe they will also redeploy science into a different role that is not the uh, the role of Knowledge is what science says that it is, but knowledge is, you know, distributed. And there are many places where knowledge can be, uh, I don't want to say extracted because that's very, uh, very scientific and very colonial. But um, yeah, when knowledge is available, knowing is available. And to, for people to take responsibility of their own knowing, their own experiences, rather than relying on the fact that if science says so, it must be true, and if science doesn't say so, it's not true. It's like you make up your mind. And I think all humans have an attitude for uh, being inquisitive and curious. And so you be curious and inquisitive, and you check it out. And and I receive a lot of emails of people like saying, like, I was thinking about this, and they're not scientists, but I can see that the way in which they're thinking could be totally like with a little uh, help it could totally turn you know, into an experiment that science would you know would do so i think we are all empowered with that and and somehow i think this is also about empowerment and disempowering was useful to to control but uh, i think that's done we need to have it done because uh, it's not going to work anymore we need as many voices as possible to be able to speak and uh or at least to feel that there is a space to speak and only then we have a, a space an environment that is in balance that is healthy uh until we have only certain voices speaking uh, then it's not balanced and it cannot be healthy
1: What is the field research that you're doing now? And after you're spending so many years fighting the establishment and really, I think, winning, as you said, and getting these ideas accepted certainly by the by the public increasingly um, and by scientists as well. What is the sort of next horizon for you um, in terms of of work that really excites you? Hmm.
0: Well, I just uh, I've been very lucky and I'm very grateful. Uh, I've just been awarded a um, significant grant from the Templeton World Charity Foundation, and who have generously uh, decided to support work on uh, intelligence in nature, basically, uh, diversity of intelligences in nature. So part of my work is gonna look at um, intelligence. So again, like decision-making, uh, choice behaviors and this kind of work uh, in across systems which do not have brain and, uh, and do not have neurons. So we will still work uh, on plants, but also extend it to other critters, uh, which are also non-neural, and uh, and just see uh, what they can do. And uh, and in that context, uh, some work, of course, will have to still be in the lab just because it's foundational. And for some of these critters, we know absolutely nothing. Uh, but some of the other work, like the work with the plants, will go outside. And, uh, and I'm very excited about that because... Um, I am a field ecologist. I, I, I believe that the only way to really know what's going on is to do it outside where things are really happening. So I, I've i been patiently waiting to get back in the field. And I knew that for the past 10 years, the work that needed to be done uh, required this more controlled uh, space of the laboratory. But I'm very excited to be able to go back out and, and work at the community level. And so I've just been on, a, on this field trip uh, to check out this site where I had this meeting with this big tree, and um, and I'm still, you know, I just came back, so I'm still ruminating on that. <laughs> but there is, I have a really good feeling that this um, is a very complex community. There are lots of actors involved in terms of plant actors, and uh, and I'm really, yeah, I feel this is going to be a beautiful site for a long term kind of exploration where different. Different species of plants, different individuals as well within species have very uh, clear roles in some aspects and then very clear relationship uh, with others around them. And I think we're going to be able to ask very interesting questions. But again, I'm not approaching these as, okay, I've got this question and how am I going to do it? As I was uh, on country, that's how we call it here in Australia, as I was on the land, walking on the land and just being with the space and the trees and and the animals there, it was very clear that I need to wait for them to really basically tell me what to do, tell me what is needed, what do do we need to show to humanity so that we can remember better um, what we are here for, what our purpose is. And our purpose at the end is very simple: is I just need to be a part of this instead of a separate entity from this. And uh, and now we're gonna show this. I don't really know, but I can feel it's gonna be fun. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, mm-hmm. and I can see it's gonna be, um, yeah, it's gonna blow my mind because I uh, I'm prepared to be opened up again and again and learn what I don't even know how to conceive yet.
2: To close, we ask each guest to recommend books, articles, films, or or other works that have had a significant impact on on how you understand and approach your work. Would you please share some recommendations with us?
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Um, There is a book uh, which I read recently while I was uh, in the field, and it's by an Australian writer um, he's in an indigenous uh, writer and he, the book is called Sand Talk. And uh, I think it's a good book because, it, at least in the Australian context, is really um, giving a, a real feel of what it means to talk about this relationship and what it means to be in relationship with everything else. And and yeah, it's very easy to read as well. So I think it would be like a fun read. And the other... Um, the other that I've been reading a lot, and actually is um it's poetry, and it comes from your area anyway, and uh, yeah I've been reading a lot I've been rereading a lot of mary oliver and uh, and rediscovering so much of uh, that sensitivity that she in a, in a unique way can just put into beautiful words, which I know even as I read her poems our uh, words are just always limited and you can feel in her poems, you can even feel the, for me, I can feel the the acknowledging how limited the words are and yet is the only thing we have is the best thing we have to sometimes trying to express the the feelings and the experiences. And, um, and there is a beautiful quote from upstream at the very beginning, one of the first essays, she finishes with uh, a quote that says something like, uh, uh, attention is the beginning to devotion. And I really like that. Yeah, because we need to be devoted. It's got this sense of reverence to me, to whatever you're doing, pay attention, put your full attention to it, and your devotion will arise. And that devotion is the love that you have for what you're doing, which is the love that you're going to have for your life. And then reverence for your life will naturally arise from that. And uh, And I think that this is what the world needs. So. Yeah, I'm, I'm really enjoying rereading Mary Oliver.
2: <laughs> Monica Gagliano, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been great to chat with you.
1: Oh, thank you so much. The, your work is just you know, wildly imaginative and, and inspiring in all sorts of ways. Thank you, too, to Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio and Daniel Block for their work on this episode. When We Talk About Animals is supported by the Law, Ethics and Animals program at Yale Law School. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. And check out our website, whenwetalkaboutanimals.org, where you can find out more about Monica Gagliano and her work. Thanks for listening.